you know, most people came up specializing in one discipline of marketing. When your question is about CMO tenure, I think you get to a point in a marketing leadership role where in order to be successful, in order to meet your investors' expectations for funnel growth, you have to be good at all these things. And it's difficult to be very good at all those things. Hey, y'all. Welcome to another episode of Mind Your Marketing. Today on the show, we got Dennis Bierman. He is the VP of Marketing at One Model. And we talk about a lot of things. We get into one, how to run experiments, the importance of running experiments, and what you should do from a budget standpoint. And that's, that's ballparked. And Dennis has a lot of experience, so he brings that into the show. We also talk about how to build a plan and run it while dealing with things like CMO turnover. So really, really fun, interesting conversation. Dennis brings a lot of experience to the show. But before we get into this, this is the Mind Your Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Shelton. And I got one ask today. If you are watching this on YouTube, if you are listening to this, just take this and share it with one person. That's all I ask. Take it, share it with one marketer, share the show or pick an episode that you like and share it with them. That goes a long way. It goes a long way with us and help building the show and, you know, getting more marketers into this and hopefully helping them, you know, elevate their career by from learning from other people. So if you could do that, share it with somebody, that'd be awesome. All right. Now let's sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Hey, Dennis, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jordan. Good to be here. All right, let's hop right in. I want to rewind the clock. 1994, Boston University. You're a freshman. Did you think at that point, did you have any inclination you were getting into marketing or was it, I'm going to go and just see where the world takes me? Yeah, no idea. At the time, I thought I wanted to be on Wall Street and I thought I wanted to be a stockbroker or a trader or something like that. So I showed up. 1994 was kind of the early days of the internet, reaching the masses and dug through email, played around with some databases and said, this is pretty cool. So that was my change in career path going from a, a finance Wall Street guy into tech. I love it. And I know when you were there, you made some pretty deep connections with you know eight people and they've been lifelong friends of yours. And I'm interested how much digital and the tools available have made you know staying connected to them easy. Oh, for sure. Uh, there's no way we would have stayed connected over the distances uh, without, you know, certainly without the web and communication tools. But, you know, it's it's a blessing, right? We've seen each other get married, raise children, grow our families and that kind of stuff. I presume you're referring to the post I made uh, on Insta that day. But yeah, it's it's been great. Just wonderful friends. All came from very different walks of life, united for four years, great friendships, great memories. And that's taken us 25 years uh, wow. into the future. Yeah. I love it. And yeah, I was scoping the Instagram. We do a, uh, trying to do a little research, you know. Um, <laughs> the other thing I found out, which I was interested, I love your bio. You said you, you really like omelets or you like omelets I have down here. So is there a backstory with that or are you just passionate about it? Just passionate about breakfast. I always thought it was the most important meal of the day. There is a little bit of a backstory. So one summer job, I was actually working for my mom who ran a propane company in New York. You know, I was doing yard work, like painting tanks and scraping the rust off of tanks. And, you know, you couldn't do that hungry. It was a hot summer day. So on my way to work, I always stopped at a local deli, just fell in love with breakfast sandwiches. And it's been a love affair ever since. Yeah, that's a, a good love affair. I, I'm also in team, I'm on team breakfast sandwiches. So I'm with you that. <laughs> now, do you have a preferred brand that's maybe marketed to you better and one over your heart from let's go fast food breakfast sandwiches? 
Uh, yeah, good question. So uh, I'll probably always be a fan of McDonald's. I don't need a whole lot of McDonald's sandwiches, but the Egg McMuffin is classic. So I'll go with that. You know, and then another one is uh, the Dunkin' Donuts breakfast sandwich is actually pretty good. We don't have as many Dunkins out here in LA, but uh, on the East Coast, I, I'm sure in Texas as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I always love getting those little nuggets out, you know, as we start the show to so the listeners get to know a little bit more about you. Now, Let's shift gears a little bit. We'll get into more of the marketing side of things. You've been in the game for a while, right? You have experience. You've seen, I mean, the internet's been around longer than from 94, but really you've seen it run the majority of its public race. When you first got into tech and marketing, I guess one, paint the picture for me of what did it look like, you know, from a, a day-to-day type of job of what you were actually doing? And then two, I want to know what you've actually carried from those early days to your job today in 2023, where you're like that principle or that technique or whatever has run kind of true, you know, over the course of 15, 20 years. Yeah, sure. Uh, so what I remember early on is a hell of a lot of PowerPoint. <laughs> it seemed like everything was was on PowerPoint in those days. I have a dear friend who often refers to new products that are built as uh, built on the PowerPoint operating system, which is a pretty funny gag that's uh, gone on for 20 years now. See, I remember a lot of PowerPoint. I remember a lot of meetings and a lot of discussions, but the strategy that we were working on on PowerPoints over those decks when you go into you know sales calls with customers and, and prospects. Strategy work was incredible. And I've carried that forward to this day. So, you know, in product marketing land, it's a lot of learning how to how to competitively position your product, understanding what makes your solution different, better, unique. And you know, I don't know that there's a shortcut to that these days. So all of those old late nights kind of like grinding over PowerPoint decks were really impactful. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm with you on that where I don't think there's a shortcut. There's also, I always make uh, the comparison to me versus a chef. Yeah, we could both have a recipe printed out and go into the kitchen. And sure, there's the recipe, but you know the subtleties and the perfection and the craft work that's going to be put into the chef's you know meal versus mine. And uh, I think there's a little bit of... Like I used to discount experience when I first got into the professional world. I was like, I'm young. Like those older people don't know nothing. And then you kind of go through a couple things in your career and you go, oh, there's some wisdom there. There's some experience there that learning how to actually do things the right way, how to put together strategy, how to spend those late nights and think about different angles. And what are the, maybe the potential threats we're not seeing? Are there blind spots? Who is the buyer persona? Whatever it may be, you, you, you can't chat GPT your way to a lot of that. No, you can't. So I I respect that part of the game a lot. Now, out of that, right, in this marketing side of things, and we talked a little bit offline about this, as an internet culture and people continue to evolve, they also stay the same, but the internet keeps moving. And it's important to experiment, not be left behind, figure out what channels are working. I want to know how you approach running experiments in your role, getting executive buy-in, and also being, whether it's unilateral across departments or just with other people you're working with, how do you approach, okay, I have this idea or this thing I want to do. What's like the next step after that? Yeah, great question. I had really great experience in marketing leadership, leveraging playbooks from a past opportunity. So, you know, a lot of what I tell both my teams and, and the, the executive leaders that I work for is 
you don't have to continually reinvent the wheel. There are playbooks, the path has been trodden before, but finding the right mix is always what's important to every business that you're working in. It all starts with having a plan, right? There's generally some sort of a framework for a program that you can begin executing against. You're going to want to set up your paid programs. You're going to want to make sure the organic fundamentals are in place, that your content programs are up and working and producing content and generating leads that way. By measuring the outcomes and the results of these activities, then you can start to dig in and dial in your decisions about where to double our investment, where to increase our investment, where to scale back. You know, I wish there was a tried and true approach to, uh, to every opportunity, every role that I've been in. But, you know, it's just hard work and it's just effort and you have to do it and you have to observe. But if you're doing it and you're measuring your efforts and evaluating them, you'll figure it out and you'll figure it out pretty quickly. You don't have to run, especially when you're an enterprise software, you don't have to run these really, really long experiments to get a good direction on what's working. Classic example. In most B2B fields, LinkedIn is a great channel. It sometimes is not if you go into kind of the down market and the, and the SMB space. You have to run those ads. You have to get those content programs up on LinkedIn. And you have to observe your funnel to see whether it's generating any leads to know if you really, really want to double your investment, triple your investment in LinkedIn. I always like to proceed cautiously. You know, I like to do just enough experimentation to be able to make a decision and act. Whether that's, you know, a paid channel, a digital channel, whether that's field marketing and getting out into the the trade show circuit or events. It's just a process of trying, learning, often failing, but repeating and coming at it again and seeing what's working for you. Is there a percentage of roughly of ad budget or we'll call resource budget from a time and money perspective that you think or that you've seen is appropriate to put toward experiments, you know, versus some of the bread and butter? Hey, we know we're doing these 10 events this year that's going to take up a certain amount of time. We're going to, you know, or whatever the things that have maybe worked in the past, but you want to try some new avenues, whether that's a new LinkedIn campaign or or what have you. Have you seen, you know, either in the playbooks or in your own experience, a percentage of budget or resources, time and money that you, that is a ballpark that people put towards that? Yeah. So in terms of budget allocations, the work that I tend to do is, or at least has been for early stage companies where resources are not infinite. (laughs) Resources are actually quite constrained. So I generally start with, a program that looks like about 50% of the spend on digital and 50% in field on events and trade shows, you know, just digging in and kind of using some best guesses as to where you think the biggest impacts will be. Paid will give you some pretty quick hits. It'll generate some leads. You can work those leads and see if they're good leads. Organic is a little bit of a longer tail effort. Organic search programs are longer tail. You know, you have to make sure your technical fundamentals are in place, your content engine is working well, and events. Events and field work is, you know, one of those endeavors that you really need a, you know, a reliable team who's hustling and out there doing, you know, putting in the effort and working hard because if you have a passive team in the field, you're not going to generate much business out in the field. You have to hustle and you have to be working your field events and generating leads. Quick example, I have um, a colleague that I've been working with, gosh, for six or seven years now. When we go out in the field, she is incredible with people doesn't stick around the booth, right? She's out talking to people on the trade show floor, attending sessions, having conversations. And she's like a lead magnet, right? She'll just bring business over to the booth where, you know, our subject matter experts are there to have the great conversations and convert those leads. So it really, really pays to hustle in the field. Which events you go to, you know, start with the big ones, start with the ones where your audience, you think your audience is most likely to be, and then venture out from there. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I always think 
with playbooks and platforms and any plan, it's similar to a playbook in the NFL. If I don't have the players to execute the, the plays, it doesn't matter how great the drawing is. Or likewise, yeah. somebody like Patrick Mahomes, it doesn't matter what the play is called. He's probably going to make it look nice. So if you do have those all-stars leaning into, okay, how do we leverage our team's strengths? And, you know, to understand we have this person here, maybe for two years, maybe for five, maybe for 20, but we know that we need to lean in to their strengths right now because they really are a tentpole when it comes to bringing stability to a channel. So I love that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, just like your, you know, your sports analogy there, you know, it's a balancing act. If you have great playbooks and great process, then you can afford to take some chances with the people. If you have great people, you're less reliant on your playbooks and your process for success. And if you have both, then even better. That's when you you hit pay dirt. Now, one of the things I'm always curious about, and CMO tenure right now is at the lowest it's been. So it's lowest it's been in the last 40 years. I think it's 3.3 years on average CMOs are around. So we have these plans. We want to do experiments. We have playbooks. And then a new CMO comes in and says, we're changing course next year, right? And I've at least experienced that being on the agency side where, hey, we're going with a different agency or a CMO comes in and then we're getting hired. I'm like, okay. So that was, you know, they were going to come in and shake things up no matter what. I guess how much have you seen that in your career where somebody just comes in and it's like, oh, we were building the airplane, you know, as we were flying it, we had this plan, it was moving and now... Ah, shit, I guess we're going down and building a completely different airplane. Have you experienced that scenario before? Yeah, I I think we've all experienced that scenario before. And I actually have a theory about this. So in the past, I've been asked, how come every candidate doesn't know this stuff? And I think the answer is twofold and it's changing. But, you know, the first part of the answer is I still don't think they're teaching it in school. I don't think you get out with a marketing degree and kind of know these, you know, high velocity SaaS tech marketing playbooks that you only get and become aware of when you're in the job and you're doing it. So I still don't think it's being taught, you know, very reliably in business school. My second thought on it is everyone calls a function of marketing home. You know, there are people who came up through their career with experience in the brand world, you know, call it the old CPG tradition. There are people who came up hardcore digital, paid search, you know, analytical marketing, and that's what they call home. There are people who came up through events and direct marketing, and that's where they call home. But when you get to a leadership position, you know, you kind of need to to be all of those things. You need to be from all of those places. And it's hard to be from all those places at once because most people are specialists in the marketing world. You know, most people came up specializing in one discipline of, of marketing. When your question is about CMO tenure, which, you know, your number was, what, three years? I think it's in some verticals, it's probably even smaller than that. I think you get to a point in a marketing leadership role where in order to be successful and in order to meet your investors' expectations for funnel growth, you have to be good at all these things. And it's difficult to be very good at all those things. Yeah, I put it down to... If you get into those roles, the most successful people I've seen in those roles, they can read and write a couple languages. And what I mean, maybe one brand, one is performance, one is maybe product development, and they can read and write, and we'll call those languages each channel or each thing, but they can read every language. They may not be able to do all of them, but they're able to understand, oh, okay, I know the importance of field marketing and events, so I'm going to trust my VP to go and be a shepherd of the budget and execute and just come back to me and, you know, work with that person. I've also seen on the flip side though, where a person comes in and they're 
a completely analytical person and they think brand is doesn't exist. Meanwhile, they're in like, they have seven Patagonia logos all over them. And they're like, brand's not important. <laughs> yep. So I've seen both, both sides of that. Let's talk a little bit now about where you're at today, enterprise, we got one model, right? And I'm always, I love the innovations on enterprise. We have a lot of people who are B2B the unsexy side of marketing, right? We're not getting Super Bowl commercials, but it matters and it helps big business. And I'm always fascinated at what companies are doing in this space. So what is one model doing and what are you all focusing on right now with regards to, you know, your marketing programs? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you look at the current situation at large companies at enterprises, certainly large government agencies and even large philanthropic organizations and charities, all of these organizations are investing in technologies to help them manage their workforce. They're hiring, they're turning over, they have goals for retaining great employees, developing these workforces. And all of these strategic objectives are supported by systems and data. And the data is everywhere. It's coming in from dozens and dozens of systems. And there really isn't a great platform out there that's bringing all that data in, structuring that data in ways that can help people planners, people managers make consistently brilliant talent decisions quickly and ethically. So one model is a platform that brings all of that data in and gives the insights and helps people managers make decisions and even predictions about where their workforce is headed uh, that heretofore haven't been possible. So it's a great data technology. It's a great predictive modeling technology. But most importantly, even in this age, this is becoming incredibly important. When you get into things like AI, predictions and modeling data for talent decisions, transparency is key. It's not going to be acceptable to be unable to explain why you interviewed these five people out of these 400 resumes that came in. You have to be able to explain why those decisions were made. Companies have goals around diversity, equity, and inclusion. For example, what percentage of this particular layer of management is diverse? There are objectives around learning and development. Which people, which teams should I invest in training programs and development programs for? It's kind of like a ridiculous problem that large companies have, but so many companies have arguments and conflict in response to the question, what is our headcount, right? Which is mind-blowing. What is our headcount should be the easiest question a company can um, and answer about their workforce. But there's a lot of layers and nooks and crannies to that question. So headcount as of when, headcount including whom, right? And, and it's very difficult depending on which data and which data elements are flying around your data ecosystem. So one model is a platform that brings that all together. It allows more people who are making talent decisions to do so, make them better talent decisions, make them more ethical talent decisions, and help them do it a lot easier and in a more explainable way. I love it. Help remove some of the bias so you don't get a department with 26 white dudes. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> not a good thing. Yeah, not a good thing. And we've all seen it. Um, I've gone into those boardrooms before. You're like, what the... A lot of Sperry's. So any, <laughs> Dennis, this has been awesome. For people who want to connect with you online, where should they go? And then two, if they want to learn about one model and help some of their hiring practices become, like you said, more ethical, more efficient, where should they go to check you all out? Absolutely. The website is onemodel.co. You can find me on LinkedIn. It's Dennis Bierman on LinkedIn. Google also works. 
And just quick plug, if it's a timely broadcast, uh, we'll be in Vegas at the HR Tech trade show out there. Looking forward to stop by our booth. It's booth 1707. Beautiful. I will put links to all those in the show notes page. Dennis, thanks again for coming on the show today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jordan. Good talking to you. All right, everybody. That's it for this episode. As always, hit those like, share, subscribe, all those fun buttons at the bottom of your podcast or YouTube app, and I'll catch you next time.